thanks for those songs there, uh, especially like that last one, Foul Lie 2, the Falcon Fly. Did you catch anything in there, Foul I 2, the Falcon Fly? So, yeah, I don't know, something such a, um, like, uh, just an urgency of going to the fountain, and then you have Foul, which is not a bird foul, it's a dirty foul, an ugly foul, to the fountain cleansing a fly, wash me, save me, or I die. It's such a beautiful word. So this morning I'd like to talk about something very, very beautiful. And the message title is Life Giving Blood. Life Giving Blood. You know, I kind of started this out by talking about someone receiving a blood transfusion. And that's actually first had dawned on me that I could have started it out this way, and maybe I should have. I just think of someone that badly needed blood. Um, but, and that's the truth, that's what we badly need, right? Um, I would like to ask a question here first. And I, I'm sharing this message out of a concern or out of a, a uh, hope that we'll be thinking of something that's coming up in the near future, okay? What's uh, April 1? And I'm not thinking of April 1st, anyway. What's April 1st? It's Easter. April 1st is Easter. Uh, Jim Elliott said he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So um, that's a Christian's April 1st. Um, so I'd like to look at I'd like to look at Easter in the sense of the historical placement um, back to the Passover. Um, I think that's so important that we keep that in mind. It adds such a beautiful layer to the to, to the tapestry of Christianity. So if we go back, you know, we're going to have the children come forward and just go through the uh, plagues here, but. We really don't have room for children, so children, all children, listen. Uh, big children, little children. <coughs> and let's look at this a little bit. So the, the children of Israel had been in, in um, Egypt for 400 and maybe 29 years and 11 months or something like that. I don't know. That they were 430 years from the left, so I'm not exactly sure. And these things started developing. God, we don't know how soon it developed with Moses, but God reached out to Moses from the burning bush and uh, gave him an assignment, go back to Egypt. He gave him a rod. Um, he said, I'm going to have you talk to Pharaoh. I'm going to have you be like a god to him. Aaron's going to be your, um, Aaron will be your, your conveyor of, you know, the, the communication. And uh, so, so Moses went back. He talked to the elders of Israel. He said, we're going to be leaving soon. He got them prepped and got this thing going in their minds. So he talked to Pharaoh. And um, sure enough, just like God said, Pharaoh's heart hardened. He wouldn't listen to, to Moses when Moses was talking to him. And then we have these plagues coming on. We have the first plague where the water was turned into blood here in the Nile. So we have the bloody Nile. And uh, you know, all of these plagues were God's direct 
judgment on the Egyptian gods. His overriding power was, was shown there to the Egyptian gods. So the, the Nile River god was overcome. And it was also a mess for the children of Israel because they depended on it. Fish died and so forth. Uh, they couldn't drink out of it. Then the second plague was the frogs. Here again, frogs overrode the, 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 the land. And, uh, and then you move on to, and there, that, that was against another god. Um, and we just go on through, and there's these, these plagues, the gnats, the flies, um, the boils, the livestock die. There's a plague on the cattle. This is all in uh, Exodus 9 through 12. Uh, there's a, the seventh plague is the hail comes down, and it kills off some more livestock, kills off probably servants in the field and so forth. There's the locusts, um, you know, strips the land. And uh, then there's this, uh, after the locust is the darkness, just total darkness. And all of this, you know, it could be enlarged on how this fits into historical text and so forth and how to point forward and what the gods could have been that God was showing his strength against. But ultimately here, Israel was ready to go, and Pharaoh's heart was hard as ever. And then there was this last plague threat, and that was that all the firstborn, boy, child, uh, boy, girl, and animal, would die. There was only one exception to that. And that's what we want to look at this morning. So we'll look at, have just told that, that part in your mind. Just a little history in your mind there. And then let's move to Luke 22, verse 7, and read through verse, well actually it's verse 7 here. Um, then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had been sacrificed. And this goes again where we find ourselves right in the setting of the New Testament. Jesus is um, coming up close to the Passover, and he's talking to his disciples. He sends them to um, get the prepare, have the have the upper room prepared. And I think I'll go ahead and read some more of these verses here. Uh, verse eight. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, What will you have us, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered a city, the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And this would have been unusual for a man to be carrying a jar of water. Generally, the women carried the water. He said, there's going to be a man carrying a jar of water. Follow, it, follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and he prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, 
He inclined at the, reclined at the table and his apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this pastor with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the New Testament in my blood. So they're here, the disciples are at this the beginning of the, of the Passover um, celebration. And it was, a, it was a very significant time of their lives. In fact, um, for them it was the first day, the, the Passover was the first day of the, of the, became the first day of the Jewish year at the time of the Passover. Uh, God had told Moses this will be the first day of uh, or this first month for you now. That's how important it was. So historically, for Christians, the first day of the year would be at the resurrection, not at Jesus' birth. Just a thought. Not that it's. But that is the way it is for us. It's at Jesus' resurrection in our hearts. That is really the first day of the year for us. Right. Now, what I really want to focus on in this passage will be, I'm sure, over the next couple, three weeks, uh, probably Easter Sunday, looking at this passage more. But I want to look at the earnestly part here. Why did Jesus earnestly desire? As I read across this passage, that really stood out to me. He earnestly desired to show the Passover with his disciples. First of all, Jesus was what? He was Jewish. He was of the tribe of Judah. His mom was of the tribe of Judah. His dad was of the tribe of Judah. He was he was a Jewish who said, Jew, the Passover meant everything. It was their deliverance from Egypt. Um, again, in the historical sense, Israel had been kind of conceived in Egypt, and the you know it grew. In, in, the, in the womb of Egypt, if you were, were to make it a metaphorical sense, and it was born when it left out of Egypt. A nation born. And maybe these plagues would have been like the labor pains. It became a nation through that time, a people. And it went from being the tribe of Abraham, Jacob, and so forth, to being a, a very large people. So, when the Passover time came, it was it was a very important event. It was the time for the family to come together and celebrate. But I see Jesus here just having a a very strong. These were his disciples. These were the people that were around him, surrounded him for you know the previous three years, maybe more. And they had a, they they spent a lot of time together, and um, there was a, a strong. Agape love bond there. He wanted to be with them in this time. This particular Passover held 
probably the inexpressible meaning for Jesus. He wanted to be there before he suffered. He was to suffer. And he wouldn't keep, he said, the Passover again until when? Until he returned, I believe, to earth to set up his glorious kingdom. So he came back. Um, the disciples, I don't think, could have had a good idea, really, of how momentous this Passover would be. Uh, can you imagine uh, how historically significant it would have been for a fervent Jew to realize that he would, or that he would be involved in this last divinely recognized Passover event? Okay, this would be the last divinely recognized Passover event in the Old Covenant. This was, you know, Peter, James, and John, and, and the rest of the disciples got to be here in on this closing chapter. And could you imagine how amazing it would have been for them to realize, for the faithful Jew to realize, that it was here their master, their friend, their teacher, their brother. This was... This was who was going to be the sacrifice, bringing in that new covenant, that new Passover. Changing, turning that first chapter. It was a, an amazing time. That last supper was an amazing time. This person would satisfy all the requirements of the law he would bring into um, effect the, uh, the advent of Christ, the advent of the Holy Spirit, being shed abroad, all of that. The new day dawning on the heart. Um, it just seems to me it would have taken quite a while for, for this realization to, to sink in. To, to, and Jesus says how the, uh, a little leaven leavens a whole lump and actually... In the, in the Passover leaven, in the Old Testament, that leaven was seen as a type of sin. They had to get rid of all the leaven, all the bread and so forth. Uh, they had to eat flat bread um, because that, that leaven had a sense of sin. But here in the New Testament, Jesus actually talks about the kingdom of Christ is actually like leaven. It, it gets into the flour, into the dough, and it just works its way through. And First thing you know, you know, it's rising the flower up. It's bubbling all the way through. And uh, I just have to think how the disciples must have, it must have taken a while for them to really realize that this Christ love is working in them and is just bubbling up. Anyways, so the new day was dawning here. Just a few observations about Israel. The bondage. Israel was in a terrible bondage in Egypt. And their lives had been reduced to third class. They were, they were seen as third class imposters, I think, to their captors. There was a huge people group growing. Years earlier, of course, Pharaoh had, had tried to you know, annihilate a generation of young males. And um, 
I think it was probably a you know population control, but also it was probably an attempt to annihilate that Jewish identity and bring them into the Egyptian population somewhere or other. Jump forward, fast forward here to where the, the disciples were at with Jesus now at the Passover. In Jerusalem, um, at this time, Israel was still in bondage. Even at the advent of Christ, Israel was still in bondage. You know, because of their rebellion against God, their idol worship, and so forth, they had been made subject to other nations. And here they were yet, second-class citizens in their own country. The Romans were lording over them. And it was a degrading and painful life for them. But the greater bondage that Israel suffered at this time was beyond that. It was, I believe, a Roman 7 condition. There was still a separation between them and God going on. Um, their blood sacrifices that they had done for so many years, they were so meaningful, but they didn't completely fulfill. They didn't do what was really needed. These blood sacrifices needed, the animal sacrifices needed to be made again and again and again. There was no end, year after year. Bring that lamb in. And I think that the idea was actually they were to hold the lamb for a while, meaning keep it next to them in their household for a while before they sacrificed it. And some people would have the thought, what would think, that there was supposed to have been a sort of bond take place between the lamb and the family so that there would be a, a sense of more of a sense of loss and sacrifice. I think that is probably the case for myself. Uh, but they were supposed to have had that lamb for some days. It wasn't real long. Um, and this, like I said, it needed to be made again and again, this sacrifice. Year after year, priests fulfilled their duties. Um, but why? For what reason? Hearts weren't changed yet. Sin was still reigning, right? So there was still a bondage that, that Israel was in. Um, now, there were people... Uh, we'll move to that a little bit later. I'd like to move on to the blood now. Like we've mentioned, there was a tremendous amount of drama that led up to the deliverance of the Israelites. Um, you know, like we've talked about, the Moses being called out of the burning bush. Um, Pharaoh witnessing this godlike man with his amazing staff that could, you know, even turn his staff into a snake and swallow up the his magician's snakes, and all these other things. Um, Pharaoh's proud heart that would only harden. It was even recognized years, years, years and years later by different nations. They would look back and say, don't, like the Philistines did, don't harden your hearts like Pharaoh did. Um, the targeting of the gods. And then the grand climax where where uh, 
Moses says, you know, unless or warns that all the firstborn will be taken. So lots and lots of drama coming up to this event. Can you imagine the, the feelings that the Egyptians must have had at this time, going back there? All these plagues had happened. They were ruined. Their land was ruined. They were ready for these Israelites to get out of here, but Pharaoh wouldn't let them go. He would just harden his heart. They're up to the, they, they've had the ninth plague of the darkness. And that reminds me of the crucifixion. Keep that in mind. Just be thinking about that. That's, that's the whole reason for this message is I want you to be thinking about Easter coming up, okay? So I'm not going to cover everything here. I just want you to be thinking and uh, to open your space of thought for, for this coming Easter. Um, or for this time period. So they're, they're here. They're realizing that everything that Moses said would happen would happen. Their, their sorcerers could put out some of the same flags that Moses did, but they couldn't retract him. You know, it seemed like there was total chaos, except there wasn't. This Moses could put out a flag. He could say something was going to happen. It would happen. And after Pharaoh repented, I mean, not a deep heart repent, but a, you know, kind of a surface, I'm sorry, uh, you know, we'll talk again. Moses would retract. He would say, okay, this will stop now. And it stopped. The, the sorcerers couldn't do that. They couldn't, they couldn't stop the, the plagues, or else they would have done so. Um, anyways, here they are. Moses warned, all the firstborn is going to die. It's going to happen. I can only imagine what kind of angst there was in that Egyptian population. Many of them may have been thinking, you know what? It's not been so many years ago that we were responsible for killing so many babies of the Hebrews. And if their God is so powerful, you might be remembering that. You might be thinking about that. And I don't know what all the thoughts are going through their minds, but it must have been a terrible uh, angst and terrible conviction on their part that something bad was going to take place. This Hebrew God was going to bring retribution. That's what I bet they were thinking. One thing, at least. And so in Exodus 11.4, Moses says, Thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. And friends, when the Lord goes out at midnight, the enemy trembles. Uh, I think Paul and Silas' enemies trembled when the Lord went out at midnight. Look what's going to happen. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the hand mill. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as never been or never will be again. And I believe this was as good as accomplished already. Now to the blood part. The Hebrews had a very specific part to play in their own deliverance. They had a very specific role. 
And let's look at that. In Exodus 12, verse 15, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. When I see the blood, when I see that you applied it to your doorpost, I will pass over you. No plague will it plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a memorial for you, a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. That's in verse 23. Wow. So, just because they were born Israelites, just because they were born into a Jewish family, didn't necessarily mean that they're going to be home free. They still had a role to play here. They had something to do. They had to step out in faith in a certain way. They kind of said, well, you know, let's come on, let's see what happens. Um, and so forth. Um, and they would have suffered the consequences of the Egyptians. I'm also thinking that there may have been some Egyptian neighbors who said, you know what? There's something pretty significant about these Israelites. Their God is, is really doing something. And if, if it's okay with them, I'm just going to uh, go ahead and take the land too and put the blood in my doorpost. I, I, you know, I believe this. I think there's probably some of that that took place, and I think that God honored that. There were proselytes. You think of Rahab, I think that would be a consistent line of thought. But this law of animal sacrifice was pointing, it was pointing forward to something much better. And we know the story here. It was a terrible night for the, Jew, for the Egyptians. It was a cry throughout the land. It was an awful, awful time for them. For the Israelites, um, it was a time to leave, to go. Uh, they, had, they were being called to go into their own land. They were being called to deliverance. And we're being called to deliverance as well. We're being called as Christians, or not Christians, we're being called in the same way. And it's that blood that gives us the life, gives us the power to, to answer that call. Hebrews 10 is a very beautiful passage that really sums up this relationship uh, between the Old Covenant and the New very well. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For since the law is put a, is, has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of a true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. 
You get that through the law. It's just a, it's a foreshadowing. It shows us what's to come. But it can never make perfect. It can never complete. Otherwise, they would not they would not have ceased to be offered. So these offerings wouldn't have ceased to be offered if if they could have been made to be complete. Since the worshippers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have been have any consciousness of sins. So, if the sacrifice was complete, it wouldn't have needed to have been made year after year after year, right? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. So basically, all these sacrifices, they did something for the children of Israel. And in, in their obedience of, of offering the sacrifices, there was a salvation. We don't know exactly how that works, but it was a salvation that looked forward to the cross. We know that. It also reminded them that they're staying, they're living in sin. They're having sins that need to be taken care of year after year. But in verse 4, it says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So let's put it this way. You and I, we're not perfect, right? Maybe we've been angry at somebody and we've sinned. Maybe we've, you know, had some impure thoughts or whatever, and we've sinned. Well, you know, we're a Christian. Does that mean that, does that mean that um, we don't go back and claim the blood again? No, not at all. What this is saying is that, so you've sinned back here, you've done something wrong, you've committed something grievous against your brother. You went back, you made that right, the blood's covered it, it's forgotten, it's gone. God does not count that against you anymore. It is gone as far as Jesus from the West. Today, tomorrow, you do something that's wrong, the blood is still there. There's repentance can be made. It can be forgiven and forgotten. Back here, it was different. And I don't understand all this. There's an economy here that goes beyond my mind to imagine. It's God's economy. Maybe some of the rest of you can explain it better. But here, these sins were kind of like covered over by the blood, right, of these animals. They weren't put away and forgiven and forgotten. They were kind of covered over. Um, maybe they were put into this great reserve that Christ would come and completely wipe away, cleanse, um, you know, vaporize, so to speak. Maybe that's the way you should think of it. In the end, though, how could we as mortals possibly deal with this thought? And all these sacrifices, these rituals, and so forth, would not do what was really, really, really important, critically important, and that is to restore our relationship with God. That was the critical part that these sacrifices of animals did not do. And what does a severed relationship with God mean? It means hell. Basically, it's hell. You know, if we have, don't have a relationship with God, if our relationship is, is severed with God, 
There's not life. Life and, and death is basically hell. Um, Gifts from God is basically hell. We think of hell as that faraway place that you go if you're bad and you know you've accumulated so many bad things that you can't go to heaven. It's not really that, I don't think. It is. It's a terrible place. Prepared for the devil and his angels. But I think the greater hell is a severed relationship with God. It's a distance, a, a not having that goodness in our life, in our lives. And that, you know, there's different degrees of that, I think. Or different degrees of depravity, I should say. Okay, so now looking at the blood of Christ again. In Hebrews 10, verse 5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but what? So Christ didn't come into the world asking for sacrifices and offerings. He came into the world. He said He wasn't desiring them. Christ, like speaking to God, He said, The body you have prepared for me. The body you have prepared for me. So, I didn't desire, or God, you didn't desire sacrifices and offerings, but rather you gave me this clay vessel and you prepared this for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. So, God takes no pleasure in all the sacrifices. Why then so many sacrifices? And again, I say overall, our understanding of God is so very, very finite. And I couldn't ask to answer that question for you, except I can say that those offerings were all pointing to this Christ who came with a body prepared for him to be the ultimate sacrifice. Hebrews 10, verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written to me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first order to establish the second. So these are what we consider the covenant. He does away with the first to establish the second. And by that will we and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There's a completion there. It is finished. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never, ever take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, or sins, he sat down at his place, his rightful place of authority at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So, 
we've looked at the blood, and I'd like to look at the being now. So in, in uh, chapter, in, in, in at the Last Supper there, Jesus was with his disciples, his apostles, in the upper room. And I believe that Israel was still finding its being in Romans 7. If we, if we read Romans 7, it was doing the motions, but the power wasn't there. The flesh was still reigning at will in the hearts. Uh, Paul says this, and I think he's talking about the Jewish experience. He's talking about his fellow brother's experience in, in Judaism. And he's probably expressing that as well in, in some of the struggles he was facing. Um, but then there's the glorious chapter 8. But let's read this. For I know that nothing, Romans 7, verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I think this is where the apostles were and Jude, uh, the Jewish people were as a whole at that last supper. Yeah. There was a desire to do what is right, but there was not an ability. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not. I do not want is what I keep on doing. And he goes on talking about this warfare that's going on. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? From this body of death. So this sacrificial medicine of animal sacrifice, I'm going to call it a medicine, it was, it had an effect. It was working. Um, but as a whole, it was working in, it was working, you know, doing, it was a merciful act of God to, to keep people looking towards Him. But as a whole, Israel had become a very cold people. They had a knowledge of God, like Jesus said, but they denied His power. There were exceptions, though. There were men like Simeon in the temple. There were people like Joseph and Mary who were looking ahead to the Messiah. Um, and many others. But as a whole, there was a coldness. There was a there was there were the Pharisees who who had it all tied up in their laws. There were the Sadducees that had it all um, tied up in their thoughts, their nationalistic thoughts. And they were missing Jesus. They were missing the power of God. They had a system going on that was it was working for them in a way. But it wasn't doing what they really needed, and that was heart change. That was this new blood transfusion, you could say. But then we go on. The, sacri- the sacrificial blood of Christ, it changed everything, and it continues to change everything. Praise be to God. It's, it's, it's here yet. It's here for us. After the Last Supper, we have the divine sacrifice and the coming of the Comforter. So we have this enormous page being turned, chapter being turned. You know, it's, you're reading through a book and it goes on and on and on and it's interesting things. And maybe it, you know, holds your attention to a point, but it all leads up to, at some point, to the next chapter. And this chapter is just enormous. I mean, it's everything for us. And that is the coming of 
that the giving of Christ as of himself, his own body, and then the coming of the Comforter. And that's a cure. That's no longer a medicine. That's a cure that's forced in our heart. The blood of Christ sprinkled on our hearts. Hebrews 12, 24. It talks about that, that blood of Christ being so much better than the blood of Abel. Remember the offering of Abel was an animal sacrifice? But the offering of Christ is himself. And it does a lot more than cover. It actually changes our spiritual DNA. It, it penetrates. It goes through us. I would like to read a few verses on out of Hebrews 10. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, brothers, since we have the confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, through the curtain being torn, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest, a great priest of the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so what is our response then to this? It is what we just read, isn't it? <clears throat> Let us draw near with a pure heart, with a clean conscience, since we have a great priest of the house of God. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he, Christ, who has promised, is also faithful. <clears throat> he will follow through. So I'd like to leave these two thoughts with you as we move towards Easter, or as we're in this Easter period. <clears throat> let's keep in mind this, well, let's keep in remembrance this amazing sacrifice. <clears throat> that forgives our sins completely and thoroughly. It remembers them no more. And let's remember that this sacrifice brought about the cure from the same curse, where it's not sin that not have a power over us anymore. It keeps, it's this sacrifice that keeps the destroyer from having power in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirits, in our souls. It's this amazing sacrifice that gives us the victory to live in the will of Christ. Do you have any other things in your mind that this amazing sacrifice does? Maybe you thought of something I haven't said. I'm sure there's plenty of other things that are done. Anyway. Hallelujah for the blood. It's amazing, isn't it? It's life-giving. Well, thank you for your attention. May, may God bless you.